So we're going to pick back our study up in Revelation and uh, we're looking at the trumpets. If I can be honest, this is probably for me the hardest pat the hardest section of Revelation um, to to preach, to teach, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's also one of the most heaviest parts. Um, just because of, of what it talks about and uh, of what it is. So I kind of feel like we're, we're getting up to the crest of a hill and then from, from this point, especially trumpet five and six, at least that's the way it feels in, in, uh, in my own mind, in my own heart. Once we get past this, then it's kind of, do we get into some really interesting stuff, some really joyful stuff, especially towards the end of the book. But this is written there, and it's written for our learning. So uh, what we do is, is we try to understand it, we read it, we try to understand it, we try to explain it. As these trumpets sound, these seven trumpets, which we're told about, there's some pretty terrible things that take place, some pretty scary things. And it's, it's what happens in here, in these trumpets, along with the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast, they really make the tribulation what it is, and they really make uh, revelate. They give the book of Revelation this heavy, kind of scary feel because, quite frankly, that's what's going on in some points along this timeline. But as I've said many times, they're written for our learning. And regarding these seven trumpets, I made the statement a few weeks ago that I believe these are a, a beginning of God to a beginning of God pouring his wrath out on the world. Um, it's really finalized in what we see as the bowls or vials of wrath, but I think with these trumpets it's God's wrath beginning to pour out. And uh, I think perhaps we need to just pause because I made that statement and I, I kind of made a couple statements about it, but I think we need to pause, and I think it's helpful to just speak about that for a few minutes. As I've already said, and as we all know in our own lives, God has been and God is abundantly gracious and merciful to us, isn't He? In fact, He's abundantly gracious and merciful to everyone on the face of the earth. We feel joy, we experience love, we have breath, um, even those who outright hate God experience these things, and I believe that's all goodness and mercy that comes from God. Uh, God is very good, and He's good to everyone, but He also has the right, and um, He will judge sin. We, we get this picture sometimes that God is always supposed to be good. Well, God is holy and righteous, so that means He's going to judge sin, and I think what's happening here is it's, the final judgment on sin is beginning. But God has a full right to pour out His wrath. And I, I want to just touch on that. So actually, I want to start tonight in Romans chapter 1. If you want to turn over there. Um, when we speak about God's wrath in the Bible and, and, and uh, God's anger and judgment against sin, we see it in two aspects. There's the active aspect, which we'll speak about in a minute, but there's also the passive aspect, um, that God doesn't exactly have to do something or affect something for Him to be pouring out His wrath. Sometimes there's a passive aspect to it. Look in Romans chapter 1, 
verse 18 is where I want to start. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That's a, a, a statement of truth. That's what's called an axiom. Uh, something that is always true. Yes, God's wrath is going to be revealed against unrighteousness. Some way, somehow, God's wrath is revealed. We may think people get away with it because God doesn't actively zap them when he or when they blaspheme him or they go against him. Uh, but his wrath can be revealed in other ways. Maybe it's a passive way. And Paul's going to explain that here in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it to them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We've touched on this many times. You can look into the natural world and see God. You can see His power. You can see His intelligence even just to study the human body, which to me is fascinating, all the different aspects and the systems of our body that works together and, and how that perfectly balances. And, and all of that can't be by chance or by accident. It's by intelligent design by a creator. Science does a good job explaining things, how things work, um, how things fit together, um, the mechanics of things. And science can ask, uh, answer the question, how things work. The question it cannot answer is, why things exist? Or, why do they work the way that they do? All science can answer that with is theories. There's an evolutionary theory. There's a Big Bang theory. There is all, there's actually a whole branch of science that's called theoretical science. That's just educated guesses. <laughs> These ideas that they concoct together and put forward as truth. But in the end, they, by their own admission, are theories. The Bible answers the question, why? God created everything in the beginning. And God made it for a purpose. And that purpose and that creator is seen in all that is made. So that they are without excuse. There is nobody on earth who can say that God doesn't exist. You understand that? Nobody. Even if somebody comes, never comes across a Bible, somebody who lives in a foreign land that has never seen a Bible, which nowadays is, is um, pretty uncommon, I think I'll, I'll say that, even they can look out and see there is a higher power, there is somebody who made all of this, so that they are without excuse. The problem is we know and we reject because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Right? Isn't that what's going on all around us? An effort at all costs to escape a uh, um, accountability to a Creator, to somebody who's higher than us, to somebody who's made us. They knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Actually, verse 22 probably sums up much of the educated uh, people of humanity. They profess themselves to be wise, but in reality they are fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So what happened is the ultimate exchange. God for idolatry. 
Instead of worshiping God the Creator, they worship bugs, creeping things, or dogs, or cows, or man. Idolatry is the ultimate exchange, the sinful exchange. And if you look around uh, at us, at society, you would think people got away with it, right? God, why don't you do something? Why don't you stop this movement of science? Or why, don't, why didn't you uh, stop Darwin when he started um, coming up with this theory of evolution? Why, why don't you step in and do something? Well, while we might be looking for the active wrath of God, the wrath of God has come in other ways. Look at verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up. God gave them up or God gave them over. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up to the uncleanness and lusts of their own hearts. That's talking about uh, sexual immorality. And as we see that rise in humanity, as we see that rise in a society, the society never gets better for it. No, what happens? Marriages break apart. Then you have um, um, people looking to cover up the fruits of what that brings, and you have a rise in abortion. Probably because you don't want to deal with the consequences of your actions. You know, that's the rest of your life that you have to deal with something that comes from that action. So you have then the beginning of destruction of society. And these people who are not following their Creator or following God's plan for their lives, they keep going after this, and finally God says, okay, there you go. Has that not happened in our own country? We blame a lot on the 60s, but that's kind of where it began to rear its ugly head, right? The sexual revolution uh, to, to where the breaking of the caste or the breaking of the, the image of a family began. It says God gave them up. And we have suffered as a nation. We have suffered as humanity because of it. Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet. God gave them up again. Now, not only do you have a sexual revolution, you have a homosexual revolution, and I think that came a couple decades later as more of this began to emerge and we had um, AIDS, the AIDS epidemic um, going around. Um, it, has that benefited society? No, it hasn't. God says, you want to keep going down that way? Okay, fine. He gave them over. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. God gives them over to their lust. God gives them over to vile affections. And it says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Fine, you don't want to think about me. You don't want to have me in your mind. You don't want to have me in, in your heart. You want to do what you want to do. God gives them over. That's wrath. But it's passive wrath. It's God working out His judgment by letting us feel the effects of our sin. Sometimes you can spank your kids to teach them a lesson, right? And sometimes you just let them do what they think they're going to do and let them fail. Sometimes that is the lesson learned more. Don't do that. Telling you to don't do that. <laughs> then they do it and they come crying. I told you. <laughs> I told you. This is why I told you not to do it. And sometimes those lessons stick with them more. Well, in the same sense, God has passively let us go into our sins. And where I find ourselves, our nation right now, is in verse 28. The reprobate mind. Think about that. Nobody thinks about God. We think about self. Or, oh, our own crusades, our own causes our own desires a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient look at verse 29 it describes this mind being filled with all unrighteousness fornication wickedness covetousness maliciousness full of envy murder debate debate (laughs) a mind that is full of debate and contention is a reprobate mind isn't that what the the feeling of society is today, right? They want to fight. People want to fight over everything. And, and <laughs> it's like, uh, it's exhausting sometimes to try to reason with somebody who's uh, given over to a reprobate mind. I can't. I, there's a post floating around a scene lately that just says lives matter. And I like it. It says lives matter. And if you have to put something in front of it or a color or something like that, then you're the racist one or something like that. Making a point, but I, I like the statement. Lives matter. doesn't matter if they're black, white, red, yellow. Lives matter. And man, people hate that. And to try to explain your point of view, it's as if some people just cannot process reason they can't process a logical argument and it's always attacking or assuming that because i say that i hate black people which is not the case but that's a reprobate mind given over to debate or deceit and that's part of god's wrath hey you want to you want to take me out of everything you want to turn your back on me totally you want to leave my truth Fine, have it. And you know what? We can see the effects of it. And it, society is not better for it. In tw- 2020, you think we would be more enlightened than we are. We're going backwards. Like the dark ages. With the way society is and the things that we're arguing over. Well, could that not be God's wrath working itself out? Giving them over to a reprobate mind. Full of debate, deceit. Malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, 
So much of that, isn't there? Proud boasters, inventors of evil things. I'm hearing things and seeing things I never thought I would. But There are people who sit there and try to think up arguments or try to think up angles to come from or, or new movements or how to destroy this or destroy that. Or Jesus is a symbol of white oppression. That's, that's the latest thing. What? Really? Abraham Lincoln. People like that. It's, it's insane. Well, it's a reprobate mind. This is what man does to himself. This is what sin does to us. And God in His wrath has just said, fine, have it. This is what you want, have it. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They know it's wrong. They're going to do it anyways. And they surround themselves with people that do the same. And they take pleasure in it. That's the passive wrath of God. And I, I, just, I brought that out to say, sometimes we read uh, of things like that in Revelation, or we read of the active wrath of God. That's like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, when God steps in and boom, He does something. Well, what's going on in our day and age is likewise the wrath of God. It's just the passive wrath of God, letting us feel the effects of our sin. Sometimes we read Revelation and think, oh man, that's going to be bad. It's bad now, because this is what sin does. Which, by the way, means the gospel can shine even brighter in the darkness. We shouldn't be intimidated by what's going on. Yeah, they might say some things, but you know what? It just might be the gospel could have more of an effect than it would in peaceful times when everything is good. What we're going to read tonight is the active wrath of God. So I want to take you to the sixth trumpet, and uh, that's in Revelation chapter 9. We're going to read, our, our text will be 13 through 21. We should get through that tonight and then move on. As I said at the start, if I can be completely honest, this is the hardest part of Revelation for me. It's hard to place. I don't know exactly when these things happen. Um, it's hard to explain. It's hard for me to even understand. And I want to be straightforward. I'm not standing up here like, oh yeah, this is where it is and it takes place here. I, I, don't, I don't write know. <laughs> this is prophecy. Sometimes it's hard to place. So what I'll do is I'll simply give you what the Word says and we'll go from there. So let's start in verse 13. If you remember Trumpet 5, those were the crazy locusts that come from hell, the bottomless pit that is unlocked by the king or the angel of the bottomless pit who falls from heaven, whose name is Abaddon or Apollyon, the destroyer, who we said last week I believe is Satan, who is finally cast out of heaven, and he unlocks hell and lets hell loose. And those demons that are let loose torment those who take the mark of the beast. That's trumpet 5. Trumpet 6, verse 13, And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. So we get a picture of this altar again, the same as in chapter 8, verse 5, where the angel takes up the fire from the altar, puts it in the censer, and it casts it to the earth. 
I think that's a picture of God beginning to cast His judgment down as these trumpets sound. And you remember the altar is the seat of judgment, right? That's where sin was atoned for. That's where the judgment of God was uh, uh, passed down and sin was atoned for. And this voice that sounds from the altar, I think, is the one who is controlling it all. Don't forget the the seven seals, right? We started our our study with that. That's the scroll as, as Christ is unrolling it. And as in each seal breaks, something else happens as He unrolls this timeline a little bit more. He's in control of all of this. He knows exactly what's happening. It's Him who is saying, okay, you do what you're supposed to do. Now you do what you're supposed to do. So He tells this angel, number six, whatever, if they're numbered, however it works out, okay, it's your turn. And He says, uh, yeah, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, we read angels and we automatically think good angels, right? Like Gabriel and Michael or those pictures of the little babies with the uh, wings and all that. We think of good angels. Well, that's not necessarily the case because remember in trumpet number five, there was an angel who was the king of the bottomless pit, all that stuff I just said. He's described as an angel. And I think that's Satan. Satan is a fallen angel. All the demons are fallen angels. So these angels don't have to be good. And notice they're bound. These angels are bound and they're begin to be they're going to be unbound now, right? Let loose those angels that are bound. Keep your finger here and I want you to turn over to Second um, Thessalonians chapter two. There's something Paul says there as he's addressing this church in Thessalonica that it'd be good for us to keep in mind. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Let's just begin in verse one. I'm not going to touch on them till verse six, but just to get what he's saying. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. They thought they'd missed it, basically is what's going on. And Paul says, oh, hold on, hold on, guys. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. There's so much to say. That day's not going to come until somebody's revealed. We're going to touch on that in probably next week or so when we answer the question, where is the church? Does the church have a part in this? Just He says, That day shall not come, except to come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Verse 4, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Now verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth. There's something holding us back. That he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. There's somebody who is withholding these things from happening. And they will be held 
until he removes his holding back of these things. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is restraining evil. There has been a restraining, staying hand of God on evil as a whole. God has held evil in check. God has held Satan in check, doesn't he? Uh, you remember the book of Job? Uh, when Satan says, hey, just let me at him. Okay, you can only do this. You, uh, I think at first is you can touch his crops or something, but you can't touch his body. Or then he says you can you know, take his health from him, but you can't kill him. See, God has held things in check. The Holy Spirit has held evil in check. These angels are bound by something, and then they're loosed. I think at the time of Revelation, um, the restraining force will be there as God allows evil uh, to, to come on the earth, to not be restrained any longer, even if it is for His own purposes. <laughs> Nothing happens outside of God's hand. Nothing happens outside of God's power. And God can use whatever means He wants to accomplish His wrath. So He says, Loose the four angels back in Revelation 9. Loose the four angels who are bound in the great river Euphrates. We probably read that. We just kind of pass over it. It's interesting that He says the location of where they're held. The Euphrates. That's an old river. Really old river. You know where we see it at? Garden of Eden. It's one of the four rivers coming out of the Garden of Eden. Well, what's significant about the Garden of Eden? The fall. Not only was it a perfect picture of heaven shattered, it's where sin started, isn't it? At least for man, is concerned. It's been the seat of ancient empires. You know the most notable of the world empires that has been Headquartered along the Euphrates? Babylon. Babylon. You know what nations are along the Euphrates right now? Iraq, Syria. Uh, nations that very clearly <laughs> want nothing to do with God. A lot of evil things have happened along this river. A lot of anti-God things have happened along this river. I don't think these are good angels. I think these are evil angels, and here they're let loose. Verse 15. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of man. Now, when he says for an hour and a day and a month and a year, that doesn't mean they're going to do what they do for a year, a month, a day, and an hour. The idea is more they're prepared for this hour, on this day, on this month, and this year, for this specific time. Uh, Second Peter, we, we talked about that last time, that there are angels chained in darkness, reserved to judgment. I think this is the judgment it's talking about when they're going to be let loose for this time. And what do they do? They kill a third part of man. A third. That's pretty staggering. One in three. So out of us, what? Two, three at least, and just in this room? A third part of man. 
Which, by the way, if you notice in verse 6, under the fifth seal, in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it, and they shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. People couldn't die under seal number 5. It comes back in uh, trumpet number 5. It comes back in trumpet number 6 wholesaling. This is why I'm led to believe it's, this takes place under the fourth seal. Let me read you that again. Under the four horsemen, remember what the fourth horseman was? It was death. Chapter 5, verse 7 says this, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. See where I'm starting to get that now? Hell following with him? Trumpet number 5 and trumpet number 6, we've got some demonic things that are going on. Death and hell followed with them, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and with beasts of the earth. Now you can either read that as a quarter of the population dies or he's given a a fourth could be geographical. Now listen, I could be wrong. I understand one-fourth and one-third don't match up. And if, the, if these are two separate events, you understand that over half the population dies then. It's a lot of death. But you know what? There's been a lot of sin in the world too, hasn't there? And the wages of sin is what? Death. And God has been so merciful. Do you realize by all rights, every time we lie, we should die? Every time we curse, we should die. Every time we think an impure thought or an idolatrous thought, by full rights, the wages of sin is death. And we should die. But God doesn't, does He? And Romans chapter 2 t- tells us the mercy of, and goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. God has been so good and so merciful in the face of our sin, even enough to provide Christ so that we might be saved. Here, that time is closed and He begins to pour His wrath out on sin. So they take massive amounts of life and the means that they use, well, it's an army. Verse 16, the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. That's 200 million. And I heard the number of them. 200 million. Notice John... Notice John says, I didn't see the number of them. I heard the number of them. Can you imagine what just horses running, 200 million horses running would sound like? These are very peculiar. It's a very peculiar army. Verse 17, And I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on him, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. And for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Again, this is similar scary imagery to like the locusts. And and John could be describing machinery of war like tanks, or guys with rocket launchers and flamethrowers or helicopters. It could be. And this is a pretty massive army. Flip over to chapter 12. Let me 
show you something there. Hopefully, it's helpful as we we're going to close up here. Revelation 12, and notice in verse 13. This massive army of 200 million crazy horses. Notice what it says in Romans 12 and verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth. Well, didn't we see a star fall from heaven? This king over the bottomless pit in trumpet number five. Could it be the same event? He persecuted the woman, which is Israel, which brought forth the man child, which is Christ. And to the woman were given two wings of a great uh, eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time or three and a half years from the face of the serpent. Israel is protected. Satan goes to destroy Israel. And we'll answer that later. Where's Israel's place? She is protected for three and a half years. Satan falls right around the three and a half year mark and begins to chase after Israel. So if 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 my line of thinking is at all correct, trumpet number five and all these trumpets are happening right around the three and a half year mark, the halfway period. And notice what he says in verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman. That he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Huh. Well, remember when we read prophetic language, um, water can be used of amounts of people. The sea can symbolize the massive amount of the population of the earth and people as a whole. Could this waters of a flood be this massive army that is employed to try to destroy Israel? 200 million would seem like a flood as he or the Antichrist who is his man deploys all of his forces to try to destroy Israel. Verse 16, And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Hmm. So it seems like these, these horses have a time, or these demons have a time, and then their time is over. Verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. All that to say, Could this be the armies of Antichrist unleashed worldwide to destroy Israel and the saints and anything that stands in his way? It could be, or it could simply just be 200 million demons that are let loose. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's a terrible, frightening scene. A terrible, frightening scene. You know what it brings to mind? Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read that to you real quick. It's just one verse verse there. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. (laughs) People so blaspheme Him. People so take Him for granted. There's coming a day when that will not happen. God is in control of this and He has full right to do this and we deserve every bit. Let me just put it out there bluntly. Humanity deserves this. And we think, how could God do this? How could He let this happen? Well, yeah, you know what? The Antichrist and Satan might be behind it. But there is an aspect of God's wrath to it as well. Because this is what we've had coming for a long time. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You think people would wise up, right? You think people would see something like this or experience something like this and it snapped them out of their 
their thinking out of that reprobate mind, right? Well, look at the end of chapter 9, verse 20. And the rest of the men which were killed not by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. They repented not that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. There is no repentance. Even after the most extreme measures of warning possible, man will still be stuck in his sins. And notice the sins that are going on during this time when there's widespread death and natural disasters and all of this going on. What is man doing? He's idolatrous. Well, of course, we know that from the mark of the beast and people worshiping the image of the beast. There's still an idolatrous heart. There's murders going on. Sorcery. You know what that word is? Pharmakeia. It's drug use. People will still be looking to get high and escape everything. Fornication. That word is porneia. We should make the references by our own minds. That's still going to be going on. Sexual immorality. Thefts. (laughs) During this time, none of it stops. It's amazing how much man is given to sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He says, Do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But after your hardness and impenitent heart, you treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. People don't listen. They have hard hearts and they're just impenitent, unrepentant. Is you're storing up wrath for that day of wrath. Well, you know what? It's coming. We're beginning to see that. Because even then, it doesn't stop. That's a pretty sad, sad commentary on the fallen condition of man. So we've got six trumpets down, one more to go. Two woes down, one more to go. And this last trumpet, trumpet number seven, is not what you think it is. But before we go there, I want to finish up in Revelation chapter 6. I believe along the timeline of the the seven-year period, we're past the halfway mark is when these happens, getting towards the middle, towards the end. Okay, As far as the seal goes, I believe we're at seal number four with the beginning of these trumpets. I want to take a pause and look at seal number five. Revelation 6 and verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, there's that altar again, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season 
unto the fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. How long? How long are you going to let this go on? You see why they ask that question now? They're in heaven. Most likely, most of them have been through this. Probably the ones asking the question, but I don't think it's just the ones that come through this or die during this time. I think it's all of God's saints. But that question, how long are you going to let this go on? How long till you avenge us? The the answer, just a little while. Just a little while longer. So next week, we're going to take a step in uh, farther into Revelation to seal number six and trumpet number seven, which I believe um, coincide. And uh, we'll we will uh, see what the Bible has to say about that. So I hope this study's been helpful. I know it's it's a pretty heavy study uh, to to read and and to think about, especially with some things that maybe is hard for our mind to understand. But I pray it's been a blessing and uh, can be useful to you.